Good morning. My name is Dave Heinrichs. I'm one of the pastors here. So if you're in the sanctuary, thank you for joining us this morning. If you're in the foyer sitting out there, thank you. And if you're online, we welcome you too. And are just it's our pleasure to have you. If we haven't met yet, um, I just encourage you to come up to me after the service. I'd love to get to know you. If we have met and I say, hey, I'm Dave, what's your name? Forgive me. That's, you know, remembering names is not one of my greatest attributes. But Mindy, I really appreciate your prayer and just talking about how it's the words and encounters with Jesus that have changed our lives. You know, that is always my hope. And it's my privilege to preach God's word. And it's always my prayer that it would honor God first and that it would illuminate his word to all of us and that it would encourage us to walk in his ways. But you might notice that whenever I preach, after I read the text, I say this little line, this is the word of the Lord. Because I recognize like this is God's word. I hope that what I'm saying is also from God as well. But I think this is the thing we want to say when I, when I say that this is the word of the Lord. And I encourage you to respond, thanks be to God. Because we recognize what a gift this is from God. And that we can be thankful for it. That this is what we have come to. It, these are words of life. This is the bread of life. Uh, because Jesus illuminates who he is by his Holy Spirit through God's word. And so I would encourage you that... Uh, you know, I'm going to try to make it that my practice after I read the scripture to say this is the word of the Lord and I would encourage you to join in in giving thanks for that. So let's do that. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. And as Mindy said, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount and we're just going to be going through the first five verses of this sermon this morning. Beginning of verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I remember when I was in high school, one particular moment, it was early in my high school days, grade 8 or grade 9, walking to my locker, and the girl who shared her locker right beside mine, unprompted, turned to me and looked at me and said, you, you are such a loser. And those words, they stung. They really hurt because... You know, according to the criteria by which these things were judged in my high school at that time, I knew she was right. You see, I was, unlike the winners in my school, I was never on the honor roll, you know, high in my academics. I wasn't known for excelling at school sports. I wasn't cool or popular. I didn't have a large group of friends to hang out with. In fact, I was regularly bullied, and so on most occasions, I found myself alone. To be honest, I've had some trepidation this year sending my oldest son to high school, because he's in grade nine, because of the experiences that I had at that age, specifically being classified as a loser. 
Now, in our society, it's more than just the loners and the uncool people who are categorized this way. And for the most part, us as adults, we're too sophisticated to use words like loser. But let's just consider for a moment those in our society that we deem as the winners of this world, and it's easy for us to see who the losers are. We value the wealthy, the self-made and the independent, the happy, of course, the beautiful. Uh, We also value the strong and the highly educated, the popular and the successful. And if these are the winners, if these are the blessed ones, Well, then you tell me, what does that make those who do not fit into these categories? You know, being classified as that loser in high school, it made me desperate for hope, for a place to belong. And for the most part, I have to say, I was so thankful for my church, particularly my youth group, because for me, that was a refuge at that time. But you see, the good news of the gospel is that it goes beyond just acceptance of the world's losers into the church. The good news of the gospel is far, far better than that. In fact, it's great news. What we just read here in Matthew 5, 1 to 5, are Jesus' words that these losers, they're actually the blessed ones. They're actually the ones who are to be admired. You see, unlike the way things are in our society, In God's kingdom, the losers are the lucky ones. Last week, we started this series on the Sermon on the Mount, and I've entitled it Living in God's Countercultural Kingdom. We began looking about how Jesus started his ministry by going around and he was preaching, and Matthew sums up his sermons with just this one line. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, Jesus' proclamation that the kingdom of heaven was coming near was his announcement that God's kingdom had begun to arrive here on the earth in him. You may recall a diagram, if you can put that up, that I showed last week about how God's kingdom was the future hope that all of Israel had longed for and that they thought it would come with the day of the Lord at the very end of history And at that time, God would put all wrongs to right. However, by sending Jesus, God preempted things. His future kingdom reign has already begun on the earth because King Jesus showed up and bringing the heavenly kingdom near. And now he is inviting people to live in the present moment as citizens of that future coming kingdom. And this is why he says to each one of us that we need to repent. Remember, repent means to think again, think differently, to turn around, right? Jesus is calling those who choose to follow him and not just be his fans to change course and to act differently, to no longer live for ourselves, but to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. And he begins here in Matthew 5 to describe the kind of characteristics required of a citizen of heaven and what a successful life in God's kingdom looks like. And these characteristics, I tell you, they are completely countercultural to the qualities that are the marks of success in our world. Today we're looking at just the first three of these characteristics or beatitudes. 
And if you've never heard this phrase before, Beatitudes, Beatitudes simply means blessed ones or to have great joy. In Christian circles, when we refer to the Beatitudes, um, more often than not, we're referring to eight of these characteristics listed in Matthew 5, verses 3 to 10 that we'll be going through. But more than just being blessed, if you are one of these things, the Beatitudes are descriptions of the qualities that are to characterize all Christ followers. I'll say it again. They are characteristics or descriptions of qualities that are to characterize all Christians. So as we go through them, we're going to continue to see how these Beatitudes are, uh, they aren't the kind of characteristics that our society normally values. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Happy are the meek. In God's kingdom, the losers are really the lucky ones. So first of all, let's look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So poor, it's a description of someone who is destitute. They are forced to beg. They have nothing to give in return for the things that they receive. And in our world, quite frankly, it's the rich who are the winners, thus making the poor the losers. But it wouldn't just be in our world today. Back in Jesus' day, it was just assumed that the rich they were the ones who were blessed by God, while the poor, well, God did not look upon them with favor. You may recall a, a famous encounter that Jesus had in Matthew 19 with a rich young ruler. This young guy, he runs up to Jesus and he says, teacher, what must I do in order to be saved? And Jesus lists off some of the law and he's like, great, I've done everything. And then Jesus says, you still lack something. Sell all that you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. And this young guy, he's like, you don't know what you're asking. I've got a lot. And so it says that he went away sad. And Jesus makes this remark as he goes away. He says, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? And his, his disciples, they're flabbergasted, right? They're shocked by this statement. So Jesus doubles down on it. He says, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. And they're just shocked. And they're shocked because they believed that if you were rich, it meant that you were blessed by God. It meant that you were in a right relationship with God, that you must be righteous. And their thinking is, well, even if the rich can't enter the kingdom, how can anybody get in? But Jesus is turning their thinking upside down in that encounter and also here in his words on the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying that your financial security, this is not a great indicator of your relationship with God or his kingdom. In fact, he's saying that our financial independence may actually be a hindrance to our relationship with God. You see, unlike the poor, when we are financially secure and independent, we can be used to making it on our own without having to rely on anybody else. And this attitude towards our finances, it can not only influence, but it can infect our relationship with God. The poor in spirit, though, you see, they are completely dependent upon God. They know they have nothing to offer him because they are spiritually bankrupt and they deserve nothing but God's judgment. 
while those who see themselves as spiritually wealthy, right, independent, self-made people, like the Pharisees, we find them often in the scriptures acting this way. They have this huge treasure trove of knowledge and just a bank account full of good deeds. They felt secure in their righteousness that they had obtained for themselves. Look at this encounter or this parable Jesus tells in Luke 18. Let me get to it here. He says, To some who were confident of their of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. He said, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector, he stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, for I'm a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Romans 3.23 tells us clearly that all of us are sinners, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, but that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus. So it's pretty clear that according to the scriptures, that all of us are these spiritual beggars. The difference is the poor in spirit, they are blessed because they recognize their condition and they come to Christ. They come to him looking for a handout and they get far more than they ever dreamed. Rather than just spare change or temporary housing, They are blessed, those lucky spiritual losers, because they get the entire kingdom of heaven. Then he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This verse is a description of those people who feel deep sorrow. They feel sorrow over their spiritual condition, so the sin in their lives, but also heavy-hearted over the brokenness of this world, that things aren't the way they should be. And it hurts them. In our world, mourning and sorrow, these aren't signs of success, right? They're signs of weakness. We want to hide our tears for fear of shame. And we also, you know, we want other people to be strong in the face of their own loss or death or whatever. And so we try to give them quick comfort because We're uncomfortable with their sadness. We see it as a flaw. You know, big girls and big boys don't cry. You know, when I was seven years old, I was a very sensitive child and I cried quite a bit. And I felt, you know, weak at that. And so I made a commitment to myself. I said, I'm not going to do this anymore. And I tell you, that, that commitment, that vow, it worked. It did something to me and not all good. Like, when I'm with other people and they are brokenhearted over legitimately sad things. I'm sad in my heart and in my mind, but, but often the tears don't come easily. And then when they do, it's this explosion. It's, it's this ugly mess. And I want to 
run for the hills and hide because I'm totally ashamed. I feel like such a loser. And as a father, I have this son who has always been sensitive and compassionate. He feels deeply and he expresses it. And as his parent, there's this there's this conflict in me, this wrestling between like, I don't want him to suppress things like I did, and yet also I don't want him to cry. I don't want him to get picked on. It's, it's not always appropriate. And, and when he was younger, we would hear about it from teachers at school or even Sunday school teachers. And as parents, it was hard. We felt so vulnerable. Yet I am glad that my son feels sorrow over the things in this world that are not fair. I am glad that he has great compassion for his friend's hurts and for grief over his own sin. And Jesus, he mourned. He cried when his friend Lazarus died. When he saw Mary weeping, Jesus broke down. It says in scripture that he was often moved to tears and compassion when he saw individuals or crowds that were experiencing hurt and brokenness. See, passionate grief can be a sign that the kingdom of God is actually upon us. When we mourn these things, it shows that we have the heart of Jesus who also is broken and compassionate. It shows that we mourn right alongside of him. When we ache at the injustices of this world, it shows that we have caught a glimpse of the way things should be, the way things will be one day. And if we grieve over our sins, it also shows that Jesus has a hold on us. You know, often I would hear from Christians saying things like, um, you know, they will easily dismiss their grief or guilt, saying, well, that's condemnation, and that's not from God. And so they'll easily dismiss it and move on. But, you know, the Bible never says that. You know, Jesus says in John 16, he says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he comes... This is what the job of the comforter is. He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit uses conviction, that guilty feeling to show us our sins and the proper response to that conviction is repentance, right? It's stopping the behavior. It's turning from going our way and and going back to Jesus. But this should also include Mourning and grief, feeling sorry for what we've done. See, as I mentioned before, I have this one son who he is quite sensitive about these things. And I remember parenting him when he was really little. It was was pretty easy. Like when he would be naughty, we would just look at him and we would say, son, what you did wasn't right and that hurts our hearts and and." It was the wrong thing to do. And he he would just well up with tears. And it was just so, in one hand, it was easy to like, okay, like we can make things better now. But I have two sons. And the other son, well, it was very different when he was in trouble. We would say, son, like what you did there, it wasn't good. It was naughty and it hurts our relationship. And he would have to cover his face because he would have a hard time not laughing in ours. 
Yeah. Needless to say, these different responses to misbehaving, it really challenged us as parents, right? The deep sorrow that one child felt over breaking trust and hurting our relationships, it was met with like quick reassurances of love and forgiveness, but the other's giggles over wrongdoing, I gotta say, it didn't evoke a lot of sympathy while we were trying to decide what discipline to come up with. Yeah. But this is why those who mourn are the winners. You see, they're blessed because they know the comfort of forgiveness and restoration, while those who feel no sadness over their sin, they can't really understand what this consolation feels like if they've never experienced the depth of sorrow. So Jesus says, blessed are the crybabies. They're the lucky ones because they're going to be comforted. And then he says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The meek are blessed. Really. Because quite honestly, meek seems weak. And the winners, well, they're strong, right? They're, they are those who stand up for themselves, who take the power or grab it. And if they have to, they'll get ahead by stepping on or over others. If you're going to be successful in this world, we've got to assert yourself. Because if you don't, if you're just going to be meek, you'll never get ahead, never get what you want or what you deserve. Yet in the Bible, only two people are specifically described as being meek. The first is Moses, who is Israel's greatest leader. And the other is Jesus, the Son of God. Meek does not mean weak. Meek means gentle, but it can also mean so much more. If you have a chance this afternoon, read Psalm 37. It is a great description of those who are meek. And it says that they are those who do not trust in themselves or their own abilities, but whose trust is in the Lord. Their identity and security and joy, it's found in God. And so they're willing to wait on him. It says that they will inherit the land, the meek will. Not those who are strong who try to take it by force. Rather, it's the gentle who trust in the Lord who get to both experience his peace and God's prosperity. The meek are actually strong, Daryl Johnson says. They're invincible because they rest in God. So what can undo them? They're wise because they seek his wisdom. They can stand firm because they are anchored to God. You know, I said... Moses was the one of two characters described as meek. And there's this one encounter in Numbers 12 where he really kind of displays what does that mean, right? He wasn't the only leader of Israel. He had a co-leader in Aaron and his sister Miriam. And in this encounter, both of them begin to speak poorly about Moses and undermine his leadership. Particularly, they go after the fact that he is married to a foreign woman. And God doesn't take too kindly to them trying to sabotage Moses' leadership. And so God strikes Miriam with a skin disease of leprosy. What's amazing in this encounter is how Moses responds in this moment. Rather than burning with anger at this couple or feeling satisfied in seeing justice being served, Moses was gentle and he had compassion on his sister and he prayed for her to be healed. And he was able to do this because their accusations, they didn't get to him. His trust was, in, was not in his own abilities. Rather, it was in God who secured him. 
He didn't get all worked up because he knew that God would justify him. See, being meek is the furthest thing from weak because when we place our confidence in God, he is the solid foundation that cannot be eroded by others or life's circumstances. But when our trust is in ourselves, that's when we're the most vulnerable. This is a lesson that I particularly have had to relearn over and over and over again. It's hard, especially when you're in leadership. I remember a long time ago working at Trinity Western University. It was a moment where actually I felt like I got it right. You know, I, there was a student there who had broken some of the school rules, so I brought him into my office. We talked about it. He confessed it, made amends. Great. Thought, this is an awesome resolution. That worked out so well, so easy. And the semester ended, and he went home. But a few weeks later, I got this scathing email from him where he also CC'd my my boss and the department head making some wild accusations of things that I did. And initially, like, I got my back up and wanted to respond. But in that moment, God just said, don't worry about it. Like, be humble. And so I sent this email just saying, hey, I, I don't remember things going that way. But if I did anything wrong, like, I want to apologize. And if there's something I can do to learn from this encounter, let's talk about it. And right as I hit send, my boss burst into my office saying, that's it, we're going to get him, we're going to nail this guy to the wall, right? Like, it felt great to have his support that he totally believed me, but I was like, no, it, it's okay, right? And yet that was 20 years ago, and today when, you know, someone questions me or I hear someone talking about me and saying things that aren't quite true. Oh man, I can tell you, I feel, I get my back up. I can feel so vulnerable. I sometimes want to demand justice rather than quietly being confident in God. This is something that, at least in my life, I'm going to have to continue to relearn and work on and continue to trust God. Because when we put our confidence in ourselves, in our abilities, in our name or reputation, this is when we are actually weak. But Isaiah 40 says, those whose hope is in the Lord, they will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagle. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. You see, the world says that we have to live like lions and not like lambs if we want to get ahead. But Jesus, the lamb who was willing to be slain for us, he says, you lucky meek sheep, you get the earth as your inheritance. Matthew 5, 1 to 5, it says, Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are the crybabies and those meek little lambs, because in God's kingdom, it's the losers who are the lucky ones. Now, some of you might actually think, you know, have a problem with me using this word losers. I don't actually think that the Beatitudes describe these losers. It's obvious from Jesus' perspective that these qualities are not only to be admired, but they are ones that we are actually to aspire to. But they are so countercultural to the world that Jesus lived in and to ours as well. But we need to take a moment and recognize what these Beatitudes are and what they are not. First of all, what they're not. Beatitudes are not descriptions 
of eight different kinds of people who are blessed by God because they have certain natural qualities. They're not natural qualities. They're also not a means of salvation. You don't go to heaven because you're humble or because you're, you, you, know, you, you, you are moved to sadness over brokenness in this world. Even if we are humble and recognize our spiritual poverty, that is not enough to save us. Last week I said that as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we need to keep the context in mind, and that context is the gospel. That we are saved through faith and following Christ. That we are saved by what he did for us on that cross. That it's by trusting him, not how good or bad we've been. You see, the poor in spirit, they are blessed because they see their poverty, they recognize how desperate their plight is, and they know the only way out for them is for someone else to rescue them. The poor in spirit know that they have nothing to offer that will gain them admission into the kingdom of God, and so they are totally dependent at God's mercy, and because of this, they live in utter dependence on him to supply their salvation. And that's what we are to do as well. The Beatitudes are not a means of salvation. But what they are is they are something that describe the character of the disciple who is living in the presence and the power of the kingdom of God. And they don't describe eight different kinds of kingdom people. Rather, they are eight interrelated qualities that emerge in every follower of Jesus. So one person doesn't become meek while the other person thirsts for righteousness. Each follower, each apprentice to Christ is to embody all of these qualities. Like the fruit of the Spirit, they are what naturally occurs in the life of a believer when they are rooted in God's kingdom, when they are connected closely to Jesus. John Stott says, "...the Beatitudes are not attainable by everyone nor unattainable by anyone." but they are readily available for all who would follow Jesus, for anyone who's born again. In God's kingdom, the losers, they are the lucky ones. So how do we become these lucky ones? How do we become beatitude people? The only way that I know how is by following Jesus, by going further with him, deeper with him, being more intimate with him in prayer, reading his word and trusting him and stepping out in obedience being willing to take risks on his behalf. As you and I draw nearer to Jesus, the better we will see him as he truly is. But the flip side to that is, the closer that we draw to Jesus, the better we will see ourselves for who we truly are too. And, you know, this week, I was taken by a passage in Isaiah 6. It was part of my devotions where Isaiah, he's drawn up into this vision of being in God's presence and he sees the Almighty One. He sees how holy he is and right away his response is, whoa, I am a man of unclean lips. I am a man who comes from an unclean people. You see, he sees God and sees how holy he is and how sinful we are. He sees how perfect God is and how broken we are, how exalted God is and how fallen I am. And the more I see God and see him as he is and my condition for what it truly is, the more I am led to repent, to turn from my ways and to follow Jesus. James 4 says that if we come near to God, 
that he will come near to us. He says, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. There it is. Blessed are those who mourn. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves. Be meek before the Lord, and he will lift you up. I don't like the first part of this passage. Basically until like the last five words. I don't like grieving and mourning. I don't like gloom and being humbled. But this passage reminds me like about parenting my children and when when they would grieve over their wrongdoing and their sin, as soon as we would see those tears, we would like scoop them up, right? And we would hug them and kiss them and we'd say, it's okay, we forgive you. You are loved, it's going to be all right, right? That's what James says God does for us. That when we grieve over the state of this world, when we mourn over the the lack of godliness in our own lives, that's when our Heavenly Father scoops us up into his loving arms. And he says, it's going to be okay. Someday, it'll all be okay. For now, I forgive you, and I love you. And I don't know about you, but this is what I want. I want God to come near to me. For the Lord to lift me up into his arms. As I said, I don't like doing the, those first parts, you know, the grieving, the being humble. But if this is what God desires, then I'm willing to do that in order to be close to him, in order to be lifted up. And I hope you are too. And so I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. And they're just going to play instrumentally for a while. But I want us to take some moments in order for us to be humble before the Lord. And just to talk to him about whatever it is that we need to talk to him about. Maybe if we feel like we're not as dependent upon God for our salvation as we should be. If we're, you know, have built our own righteousness up. Maybe we bring this before God. Or maybe we're not grieved over certain brokenness in our lives. Or we lack some humility. Bring these things before God. He promises that he can and will develop these beatitudes in our lives Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1, he says, There's never been the slightest doubt in my mind that the God who started this great work in you would keep at it and bring it to a flourishing finish on the very day that Christ appears. So let's take some time to be humble before the Lord and allow him to lift us up.